Welcome back to the Our Voices podcast. I'm Freddie Stewart. Vijay Prashad is a journalist, commentator, and the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He's also the chief editor at Left Word Books. This conversation between Prashad and Our Economy's Europe editor, Laura Basu, centers around one fundamental question. Is capitalism racist? The subject of an upcoming documentary podcast, right here on Our Voices. For more of our previous podcasts, as well as a range of articles from expert thinkers from around the world, head over to the Open Democracy website at opendemocracy.net forward slash our economy. So here's historian Vijay Prashad on the question, is capitalism racist? Well, it's a one-word answer. The answer is yes. Uh, now, obviously, you don't expect me to stop just by saying yes. So uh, what else should I say? I should say that it's worthwhile to go back and read Eric Williams' book, Capitalism and Slavery. Eric Williams was the first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago when it got its independence. And this was a book based on his PhD. Um, it's a very important book because it basically shows us that the origins of, let's say, modern capitalism, capitalism, the origins of capitalism is not in Manchester, in Birmingham, in Sheffield. You know, it's not because some enterprising British or Scottish person decided to set up a manufacturing unit in Sheffield to create cutlery. That's not the origin of capitalism. You know, that's what, for instance, um, you know, Max Weber would like you to imagine in his book on the Protestant work ethic, as if it's because Protestants, unlike Catholics, decided to save and personal savings were gathered together. And then that's what was the first down payment on the factories of the British Midlands. This is nonsense. I mean, we know that Brighton, I'm not Brighton, but um, many cities, not just Brighton, many cities in the UK were ports. And these port cities had ships coming in there which brought, yes, of course, human beings who had been converted into commodities. You know, what is, I think, very poorly called slavery. Uh, It's actually, and, you know, there are these words like slave and so on. They they create, they in language, they commodify people. In fact, they are human beings who were traded. um, And this trade in human beings, of course, meant that you got free labor in the colonies, in the Caribbean, in the Americas, and so on, where primary commodities were produced at very suppressed prices. Uh, These primary commodities in their sale um, brought huge profits. And this profit margin is what created the capital sums for the emergence of capitalism. That's the origin of it. I mean, 30% of most of the British Midlands capital formation took place through the drain of wealth from India. So, you know, when people talk about, wow, you know, look at how ingenious the British were and Adam Smith looking at all this, writing The Wealth of Nations. Well, Adam, Wealth of Nations, that's an interesting book. But what about the theft of certain nations against others? You know, that would have been an interesting book. In fact, the last part of Marx's Capital Volume 1, which is about so-called primitive accumulation, he writes there that capital comes, you know, dripping in blood. Its pores are leaking with the blood of the colonies and of enslavement and so on. It doesn't emerge from the petty savings of Protestants. You know, that's a fantasy. So from its origin, capitalism is racist. I want to take this further because I think there's something important to be said about um, human, uh, you know, humans being made into commodities because Humans were made into commodities and they fought that from the very beginning. That's important. And they won. So, for instance, in Haiti, they won against the French. You know, they threw out the plantation system. But what did the French state do? The French state then forced the Haitian people to pay an indemnity, which came to trillions of, of, you know, French francs. And that payment didn't end till 1947. You know, so for over a hundred years, the Haitian people were paying the French for their own freedom. And so therefore they continued to pay in a racist way into the French exchequer, which the French could then accumulate and put into the process of ceaseless capital accumulation. 
it's the same with Jamaica. And in fact, it's worse in Jamaica because in Jamaica, again, the people rebelled. You know, there's the Morant Bay Rebellion in 1865. Eventually, um, the British Parliament says, okay, let's abolish human enslavement. Great. Well done, Britain. Except that the British Parliament, the British government, and I hope that the people of Britain feel embarrassed about this. From the 1860s till about 10 years ago, the British Parliament paid the descendants of slave owners for the loss of their human property. I mean, it's revolting. But they didn't pay the descendants of those who had their wages stolen for centuries. And on top of that, under pressure from the US Treasury Department and from the British government, the IMF forced Jamaica to keep their public sector wages down to a limit of 9% of GDP, which meant that Jamaica couldn't adequately pay their socially trained population that go into something like, just an example, nursing. So Jamaican nurses trained by the social wealth of Jamaica were not able to be adequately paid in Jamaica because of this 9% threshold. And then the National Health Service from the UK shows up in Jamaica and recruits people to come to England. Now, you tell me how it's possible to make the argument, given at least even just the Jamaica story, you tell me how it's possible to make the argument that capitalism is not racist. Yeah, so that kind of partly answered my next question, which was, so capitalism was founded on slavery. And there have been many legacies of that. My next question was going to be, is, does it continue to be racist? And I think you've, you've started to answer that. You see, there's two things about capitalism that are important. One is that if you, it's like a 100 meter race. If you start at the 50 meter line, you have a 50 meter advantage over your opponents. And in a sense, um, the core countries, you know, the Northern European countries, the United States, Canada, etc., they are always at the 50 meter line. And other countries are always at the 100 meter line. There's no way that these other countries can catch up. There's just no way. It's not possible. And the reason they can't catch up is not only because they suffer from a lack of capital sums, which is very important. You know, there has been no adequate reparations for colonialism, for enslavement, you know, etc. Nothing. No back wages paid. You know, it's bizarre that when the question of reparations rises, the northern European countries, the United States, people scratch their head and say it was a long time ago. You know, I, I was not personally responsible. Meanwhile, they're playing, paying the slave owners' children reparations. You know, I mean, let's just put all these things together and it, you have to really wonder about ethics and, you know, and economics. So one thing is this 50-meter advantage, but associated with that is the fact that wealth continues to be drained because most of the formerly colonized world, you know, most of the world in the tropics region continue to get immense pressure upon them, which makes it impossible for them to drive a resource agenda for their population. So firstly, what they typically produce, and often colonialism created monocrop mono uh, countries, so that one country was actually just drawn up because it produced a crop. You know, that's how a lot of boundaries were, were, were produced. So you have this, this crop, this primary product that has a very suppressed price, doesn't have a genuine market price. And so you're getting ripped off on that. Secondly, you have to borrow money from the money that was stolen from you during colonialism. You have to borrow that money in order to manage your finances. And you go deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. The debt crisis is the essence of the long-term racial impact of capitalism. And today, the debt crisis, the burden on so-called developing countries is over $11 trillion. There's no way these countries can ever pay it. And in the current coronavirus recession, it is an impossible payment for them. This year, developing countries have to pay almost $4 trillion in debt servicing. That's not the 11 trillion principle. This is to service the debt, and it's not possible. So has racialized forms of cap, does it continue? Yes. 
does capitalism as a pure logic require racism certainly not certainly not as a pure logic but nothing in the world nothing in human history comes to us through a pure logic everything comes in a sense conjuncturally everything comes historically the form in which capitalism emerges in the world is through the hierarchies that it inherits it it inherits racial hierarchies it inherits gender hierarchies i mean there is no necessity for the kind of uh, social reproduction of of human life to take place on gender lines it could take place on other on class lines you know in fact in in many countries women in a household don't necessarily socially reproduce they hire other people to come in and take care of their children they hire other people to clean they hire other people to cook their food and so on all the so called gendered labor forms can be hired in you know that can happen there's no need for it to be on gender lines but because of gender hierarchies gender hierarchies get reproduced into capitalism i mean in other words the pure model doesn't require it i don't believe at all that it requires it but because that's the form in which you know it absorbs history it's necessary to it now it's very hard to disentangle these forms of you know social differentiation and hierarchy from capitalism today that's really interesting i was that was going to be my next question is does capitalism require racism and well you you've argued that theoretically it doesn't necessarily have to but would you argue that it does capitalism does require a hierarchies and b imperialism so um those are two interesting issues one is does it require hierarchy and the answer is yes certainly and in the so called pure logic of capitalism the hierarchy is on class lines in other words there have to be a substantial number of people in a society who are dispossessed whose only possession is their ability to work and then they bring that ability to work they have to sell it as a commodity which is labor power they sell it to the capitalist the capitalist then in the process of production exploits their labor power and extracts surplus value so class is actually integral to a pure capitalist system otherwise the system makes no sense without dispossessed people who have to sell their labor power now it happens that because capitalism is a human a system and it emerges in history that uh, the people who do certain kinds of work and so on are segmented on racial and gender lines that's just how we how we worked i mean that's how things happened you know in in south asia for instance there was the hideous um, you know institution of caste and the hideous institution wretched institution untouchability so that when capitalism emerges in south asia certain communities so called untouchables become sanitation workers now there's no necessity for certain people to be sanitation workers in other countries it doesn't work like that but in south asia that is the actual imminent form in which capitalism segments labor markets labor markets get segmented in every country you know there there are gendered forms of segmentation certain jobs nursing for instance predominantly women why because it's seen as part of the care economy you know that these are ways caring elementary school teaching primarily women in those but there's no necessity for that it's just that there is a huge ideological and structural idea that women are carers therefore these are good occupation then they get get underpaid in these occupations and then you can have that wage gap gendered wage gap and so on so it's impossible to say it's really impossible to make an argument that you can transcend social differences within capitalism because it's so rigidly part of the capitalist system as we know it now that it's a fantasy to believe that you can have gender you know women's liberation within the system it's so entrenched you know it's it is it is essentially so parasitic on these older forms of social hierarchy capitalism doesn't produce gender hierarchy capitalism doesn't produce racial hierarchy these are inherited from the past but capitalism has essentially drawn them in and utilized them in its to its benefit so deeply that it's impossible to imagine these forms of liberation through it i mean the gender pay gap for instance is hugely valuable for capitalists they make a lot of money by underpaying certain people then even more unpaid labor is hugely profitable if you had to pay 
a full wage. If, for instance, all of uh, domestic life was commodified, you know, if you actually hired in workers to clean, to take care of your children, to wash your clothes, if everything was hired in, then your if I go out to work somewhere, my wage packet has to be substantially higher for me to be able to hire in people. Well, I don't hire them in. Instead, I utilize, say, gender division of labor in the household, children, so on, free labor. You know, that's integral to the way in which capital accumulation takes place. The worker who goes out and, and gets a wage job can get a suppressed wage because there are so-called externalities. You know, what are the externalities? Well, it's the reproduction of the worker is an externality. Why should it be an ex Why can't you internalize the cost? If you internalize the cost of social reproducing the labor, then the profit margins go down. So capitalism is incapable of internalizing, you know, in a sense, justice. It can't do it because then you lose the profit margin. Same with imperialism. It just can't do it. You, you require super exploited wages somewhere else so that raw materials come to you at much reduced prices, much reduced prices. We did a calculation on the iPhone. We calculated that if the iPhone was produced in the United States, each iPhone would cost perhaps up to $30,000. <laughs> so now you tell me there's no such thing as imperialism. <laughs> but then you're arguing that capitalism can't exist without imperialism. Yeah, show me. I mean, I would like to see where it exists, without, where it has been capable of doing it. Even in the so-called most advanced societies, it requires social hierarchies, you know, uh, because it requires the cheapening of the costs of labor. Uh, you see, if in a society, let's let's take the fantasy of some Scandinavian country, you know, where they're just perfect there. Of course, they're not perfect. You know, they have hideous inequalities. Just imagine that. Nonetheless, I mean, they still manufacture things elsewhere. You know, um, uh, you know, Sweden is still manufacturing things in other countries. Germany manufactures most of their high-tech things in Hubei province in China, you know, where, where Wuhan is the main city. Um, they're not manufacturing everything in Germany. They're utilizing wage arbitrage to enable German companies to maximize their profits. You know, that's what they're doing. Um, you know, if, if there was no patriarchy, um, then the question, the consistent ongoing question of, you know, uh, household uh, labor would not be on the table, you know. Um, but it is on the table. And if you look at a place like India, where there's a lot of in-hired uh, work, you know, people are hired in to clean, to take it. This is the most underpaid sector. It's totally an informal sector, totally underpaid, totally not just exploited, but oppressed. You know, there are people who live in. Now, if you have a live-in worker in your apartment, they are basically on the 24-hour clock. At any time you say, hey, come and make me a cup of tea. Well, that's outrageous, you know. Uh, what about their time for relaxation and social reproduction? No, they are on the clock 24 hours. A lot of children working in that sector, informal children, unregulated, no unions, no nothing. I mean, if there's a way to transcend patriarchy, uh, then this should be part of the debate, you know, this highly exploited. And in the West, you see, in the West, one can be, much more, uh, in a sense, you know, sanguine because you say, well, we don't hire in children to do our work. Well, you know, you don't, but you have things delivered. Uh, you get food delivered. That's, you know, or you buy frozen food. That frozen food requires a freezer in your house. That freezer eats energy. That energy is destroying the planet. You know, so it's not like you are somehow liberated from the contradictions. You know, fine, you don't have, uh, you know, a cook coming in and cooking your food. But in fact, you're getting the food cooked far away, flash frozen, transported to you in a freezer truck, and then brought to your house, put in a freezer. I mean, think about the huge carbon footprint of putting that in the microwave and saying, well, I made my dinner myself. You didn't. You actually hired a cook. Yeah, there's probably some children involved somewhere down there, the supply chain anyway. What about the nation state? Where, where does the nation state fit into all this? Is the nation state inherently racist? I mean, it depends what you mean by is a nation state inherently racist. Um, let's look at na nation states because they are very complicated institutions. You know, generally in the 21st century, nation states have constitutions. Typically, constitutions are very high-minded. Typically, you know, I mean, the apartheid constitution in South Africa, that was a hideous constitution. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, 
I mean, the Israeli constitution is pretty hideous. And, you know, I would say that's a quite an outlier. The Indian government's attempt to create the, you know, Citizenship Amendment Act and so on, it has a tendency to really destroy the Indian constitution, which was a powerful document. But in general, at the constitutional level, most nation states are pretty high-minded. But the worst way to judge a nation state is by its constitution. In my opinion, the best way to judge a nation state is by its, its budget, how it spends money. So if you look at the budget of most nation states around the world, you will find that the, it reproduces racism. How, how does it do that? Uh, let's take the United States, a very good example. And current example because of the protest after George Floyd's death, and also because of the defund the police campaign, which speaks directly to this. You see, on the one side, you'll get somebody like George Floyd, who is alleged to have passed a counterfeit $20 bill. Or you'll get Eric Garner, who was alleged to have sold loose cigarettes. Now, these are interesting stories, because what they suggest is these are men who are trying to hustle money in order to survive, you know, themselves, their families, and so on. So you have an abundance of food in this grocery store. And then you have the George Floyds and Eric Garners and so on, who are having a hard time, you know, surviving in the world for many reasons. And we don't need to get into that, but that's just a fact. Now, the state has decided, the nation state has decided to use precious social resources to put a police officer between the food and the hungry. So you build this wall, this police wall between food and hungry people. You could just as easily have taken those resources and bought or somehow got the food and fed the hungry. And you just don't, you circumvent the blue wall that prevents people from eating. But a state has made a choice. We would prefer to protect private property with the police. In that sense, because of racial hierarchies that are inherited, states indeed reproduce racism you know, repeatedly. Now, it's not like the nation state produced racism. Racism has a much older history. You know, I, I get a little sorry, impatient with uh, a lot of the way in which, the trivial way in which social construction theory has gone, where people sort of go in a silly direction that as if, you know, colonialism created caste. No, caste has a long and terrible history. It's not the responsibility of the British. British did a lot of terrible things, but Indians did a lot of terrible things also. Indians are not perfect. They're also hideous people like anybody else. You know, They also had their own wretched history. They were not perfect, and then the British arrived, screwed everything up. So these things are inherited, these you know, hierarchies and differentiations. And obviously, in Northern European or North American countries in Brazil, these are actually an inheritance of that practice of enslaving human beings. You know, you enslaved human beings, you never actually paid them back wages, you never took care of their descendants by some reparation, therefore these hierarchies exist. And then you say, sorry, you're hungry, here's a police officer be between you and food. That's a choice the nation state has made, not to um, transform old hierarchies at all, effectively, and then to build this militarized force to protect the food from the hungry. That's a clear indication that a nation state today, in, at least in Northern Europe, in North America, Brazil, you know, countries like India, reproduce hierarchies in a wretched way. And that you can't see if you just look at the constitution. Because as I said, constitutionally, wow, you know, the United States constitution, for the most part, it's brilliant. United States budget, on the other hand, in just hideous. What do you think about, on the one hand, the, the Black Lives Matter protests in the US have kind of triggered a, a new wave of internationalism, maybe it's been claimed. But on the other hand, you could probably argue that focus, so much focus on the US and the US context kind of takes, pulls focus from other parts of the world, like the Global South, where, you know, people are arguably suffering more than African Americans are suffering. What do you think about that? I mean, you know, it's not, a, it's not uh, I think, necessary to say who's suffering more. I think more than that, it's important to say, let these conversations go further. So if, you know, if George Floyd is killed and people are upset about that and they're overturning statues of Columbus and, you know, and in Britain of slave, you know, these fellows, what's his name, Colson, 
you know, Edward Colson. Good, remove them. Uh, it's true, right on Churchill's statue, racist. He was a racist. That's actually a description. That's not a value judgment. He was a racist, you know. I think he would have admitted to it. Uh, he was a racist and he was genocidal. Um, the things he wrote about the people of Waziristan, scary. I mean, it's actually scary to read Churchill. So that's him, you know, that's fine. Now let's say, okay, you're going after Churchill. You've written racist on the statue. What are the implications of this for countries around the world? You know, what are the implications of this for, let's say, um, you know, the rest of, of, of humankind? I mean, what... If you're worried about and upset by uh, human slavery and enslavement, let's ask the question of what impact this had on the African continent. Um, what impact did this have in the Congo? I think it's quite right that in, in Belgium, the King, of, King Leopold's descendants have apologized for him. Okay, you apologize, but now you also killed Patrice Lamumba and you also supported um, you know, Mobuto for decades, and you also continue to destabilize the Congo. It's okay to apologize for King Leopold, but he was in the past. You continued to destabilize the Congo. You know, Glencore, which continues to exploit the Congo, particularly in the cobalt and coltan, you know, these uh, mining operations, is a Swiss company. Um, you know, okay, there are two kinds of statues. One is a statue of a person who had a terrible record in the past. The other is the headquarters of a multinational company that continues to do what those statues did in the past. So what about bringing down the headquarters of the multinational company? I, I would like to see that. You know, I would like to see the protest movement escalate further to demand the cancellation of the debt. And I would like to see them write racist in front of the Glencore headquarters and bring it down. So if capitalism and the nation state in their current forms are racist, what's, what's the solution? What, can we, what do we do about that? I mean, it's not something that we can just do. You know, uh, these are not magic wand questions. These are questions about people building movements, having the confidence to confront, um, you know, the exploitation, um, you know, fighting to rebuild and reshape the world. And fortunately for us, there are movements around the world that are doing just this. You know, there's, for instance, the landless workers movement in Brazil, which is fighting for an agrarian reform agenda. That's exactly a fight against the legacy and histories of human enslavement in Brazil. Um, they're already doing it, you know, so there's no need for a magic wand. We just need to find ways to amplify their voices. We need to find a way to help strengthen their movement. I mean, one of the tasks, it seems to me, of intellectuals um, is to not believe that we will somehow change the world, but we need to put ourselves much more in the service of movements that require our uh, expertise, uh, assistance, uh, amplification. You know, um, there are movements in on the African continent that require um, our uh, amplification. For instance, the Socialist Party of Zambia is struggling to build a popular movement in that country against the exploitation of the Copper Belt region, you know, mostly by Western and largely by European and Australian firms. Um, but, you know, people in, in the West generally tend to think that their governments are benign. You know, look at France. You know, France is continuing a colonial policy in the Sahel region of Africa, you know, from Niger right out to the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the French uh, special forces in the Sahel, uh, in Agadez. I mean, and, and they're not there just because of, um, you know, humanitarian purposes. In fact, not so. In Niger is one of the largest, um, you know, holdings of yellow cake uranium. And there's a town in Niger which powers most of French power plants. And if you go to this town, the whole town is surrounded by French special forces. It's at the gateway to the to the Sahel region, you know, just north of Agadez. So that's what they're there for. They're also there because they've decided, the French, the Americans and others, they've decided to create Europe's border no longer at the Mediterranean Sea because they don't want Europeans to see pictures of people on boats trying to cross the Mediterranean. They've moved Europe's border to the Sahel. They've totally militarized that region. They are working with those governments. It's a French policy called G4 Sahel, where they've built a wall out there. They're blocking people moving up into Libya, into Algeria, and then crossing over. They want to stop them there. Now, why isn't this outrageous to people in France? I would like to see, you know, sensitive French people not only go out on the street, yellow jackets, 
demanding an end to austerity, but saying that the French state has no business prosecuting colonial policies. The French franc should be withdrawn from the African countries. The African countries need to produce their own currency. You know, Gaddafi had proposed a currency called the Afrique, um, which was going to come into effect. And bam, Sarkozy aggressively comes and takes out Gaddafi. Now, maybe it had nothing to do with it. But boy, if you're a person who looks carefully at what's happening in in Fran Francophone Africa, you think there's got to be some conversation in the Elysee Palace about the fact that um, the Libyans are, are driving an agenda inside the African continent to remove the French franc as the main currency in operation in so-called Francophone Africa. Um, this is very difficult for the French government because they export inflation. You know, this is their means of exporting inflation. If the French franc was removed from there, you would see much more difficult fiscal and monetary policies uh, have to be enacted in France. And, and somehow the yellow jacket movement, you know, in France is not linked to this anti-imperial uh, struggle. And so when you say, what can we do? You know, just uh, when we're talking, just in this period in Ouagadougou, in um, the capital of Burkina Faso, uh, you know, we're talking about statues being removed in, in Europe and in the United States. Burkinabe population just erected a big statue of Thomas Sankara, uh, who was the president of, of, of Burkina Faso from 1983 to 87. He was assassinated in 87 with the connivance of the French state. Uh, they took him out. And as statues of racists are being removed in Europe, the Burkinabe people have erected a statue to their hero, Thomas Sankara. Will the French bomb that statue? Good question. So it sounds like movements for land restitution, I guess resource sovereignty in a way, and, and currency sovereignty, these kind of movements. What do you think about the more radical demands in the US for things like reparations, defunding the police, defunding the military, and even abolishing prisons or at least mass incarceration? Do they kind of reverberate around the world as well? I mean, the United States is its own particular kettle of fish because it does have an incredibly high number of people in prison. Um, other countries imprison people in different ways. You know, one way in which people get imprisoned is that they are condemned to slums. And, you know, you, you condemn populations who have become, in a sense, surplus populations. You know, they are not necessary for capital accumulation. They are housed in large areas and they are abandoned from social services and so on. And then, you know, ganglands and other people take charge of those areas. You know, they, gangs are like prison guards, uh, you know, in the open air. So it's not like uh, prisons are not available elsewhere in the world, but the United States actually has prisons and they actually spend a huge amount of money imprisoning people for things that people should not be in prison. It's one of the few countries in the world when you get sentenced to life, it means life. You know, in most countries, it means 20 to 30 years. In the United States, it means your natural life. That's, to me, that's insane. Um, what crime uh, should have you go to prison and lose your life? I mean, that it's to me, literally, it's insane. 20 years is a long time to send somebody to reflect on what they've done, to learn different skills. You know, if you have a humane policy, that, but so that's a very special kettle of fish. I don't think those debates reverberate. Um, I think what, what this question of uh, racism or these statues, what they do raise is they do raise questions about the history of um, imperialism, colonialism. They do raise questions of, of theft, you know, wage theft um, over centuries. These questions do get raised. Now, unfortunately, um, because of the nature of uh, the culture industry, which is heavily uh, skewed to the United States, the demands from the U.S. then come elsewhere and people start to just up adopt the demand. They will use the same slogan. That is unfortunate because every country essentially has its own sort of terrible politics and they need to come up with their own demands. Some of this is social media pressures and so on. It's not like political movements, genuine mass movements, you know, in, uh, in where, let's say, Morocco or Tunisia, the Workers' Party of Tunisia isn't adopting Black Lives Matter slogans in Tunisia. No, it's not like that. They have their own politics. But there will be some young people on social media that might. I don't actually think that it reverberates like that. What it does show is it shows that the country that positions itself as the guardian of universal morality, 
is not that. It's in fact, perhaps even the opposite of that. That for instance, um, it is, I think, important uh, to understand that the I can't breathe statement is being used now by people on the African continent to talk about the debt crisis that um, it is being used uh, to talk about the sanctions regime against Iran and Venezuela. I can't breathe. These are countries being suffocated. You know, on the one side, you had Eric Garner say, I can't breathe, and he died. You have George Floyd say, I can't breathe. It's the same sentence, and then he died. Said it many times. The Venezuelan people are saying, we can't breathe because your sanctions are so, you know, absolutely criminal or um, people on the African continent saying the debt crisis is so terrible, so deep right now, we can't breathe. So I think that's interesting is where this uh, moral high ground of the United States government is, I think, compromised. And this has been an issue since the 50s, you know, when Pravda, the Soviet newspaper, used to carry front page photographs of the police in Birmingham, Alabama, setting dogs on children. Front page picture saying, is this really freedom? In the US, they're talking about defunding the police and defunding the military. That could be applied on a global scale, kind of, you know, thinking about the US as the policeman of the world or thinking about US military presence around the world. We could think about kind of defunding or dismantling those structures globally as well. I think that, that's true that uh, there is a you know, bases, 180 odd US bases and more. I mean, th these are just bases. Then there are agreements to land and refuel and so on. But even this make it anachronistic, like just as colonialism decolonization happened at a point when it technologically was not so necessary to actually physically control territories. In the same way, there are technological advances now that don't make it so necessary to actually have bases. I mean, the United States has developed a missile called the hypersonic missile, which can be fired from the US and within an hour it can hit anywhere. In some cases, within 15 minutes, depending on the payload. So. You, you fire a missile from Nevada, you can strike, um, you know, the Middle East in 15 minutes. You know, that, that, that's amazing. So you don't actually need a base in Diego Garcia. You don't need a base in, in you know, the Sheikh Obed base in the Gulf. You don't need these things because technologically you've superseded them. So I think, you know, when people make demands now, they should also be very careful that the demand should be calibrated with the current reality. Um, you know, and not yesterday's reality. Like, yes, I think bases should be removed. I, I'm very much in favor of the campaign to remove U.S. military bases. You know, in Ireland, for instance, it sh the Irish people should be ashamed that the Shannon Air, Air Base was used by the Americans for extraordinary rendition. You know, they'd fly into Shannon, refuel the plane, fly to, uh, you know, whether it's Damascus or in Cairo, pick up their passengers, fly to Poland, drop them off in the black site, fly back to Shannon. You know, this is in Ireland. Irish people, what about your national liberation history? You know, your independence struggle, the Easter rising. Seriously, you're collaborating in extraordinary rendition. You know, which Irish politician has gone to prison for that? Because it's against the law. Nobody seems to have gone to prison as far as I know. Um, and I'm not talking about Tony Blair. I'm talking about Ireland, a sovereign, separate country that won its independence, you know, in an anti-colonial fashion. So what, what we've got to think about is you've got to get rid of bases, sure, but also think about how technological developments actually transform military power. And sometimes the overseas base may be superseded by these terrible, terrible weapons, which should be banned. I mean, Trump has, has created the Space Force. You don't need bases on the ground. You just have a base in space, which fires, you know, these new weapons, uh, laser weapons and things like that, which can take out satellites. I mean, what's the most terrible thing for a country right now in the middle of the pandemic is if you suddenly lose your internet. We're talking about the U.S., the role of the U.S. in the world historically and currently. But what about, you know, the fact that China is on the rise? And uh, there's been a lot of talk about this pandemic kind of accelerating the decline of the US as a global force, as the main imperial power and, and the rise of China. Is that, is, that, is that something that we should be celebrated or is that a cause for concern? Will that change, will that change things for the majority of, of people in the world? I mean, I don't believe that there is going to be a shift of that kind. You know, 
the United States declines, China rises. I don't think it's that simple. I, I don't think actually China has those pretensions. In fact, uh, I, the Chinese government makes it very clear over and over again, they don't want to have that role. Um, they're not contesting the US for world hegemony. I think what has happened is at least since the 19, late 80s till the present, there has been a great global imbalance, which is that the United States has positioned itself as the singular superpower. This is very unbalanced. You know, the Europeans went along with it for their own interests. They never tried to balance the situation. The USSR had collapsed. China was, of course, at the time quite weak economically in the late 1980s. And what has happened over the last 10 years is not that somebody is contesting the US, but there has been an attempt at rebalancing. I mean, I would say that the first attempt to rebalance was in the 2000s, about 10 years ago, when the BRICS bloc was formed, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. There was an attempt to just create some multipolarity, not allow one country to set the terms for everything. It's a very unhealthy way for the planet to be organized. You know, The UN has been sidelined. The United States dictates terms. The US Treasury Department essentially runs the IMF, runs the World Bank, just dictates the terms. I mean, look at Europe. What is Europe? The European Central Bank, uh, even in some ways, um, the way the ECB head was put this time, Christine Lagarde, I mean, the Treasury, US Treasury Department drives the agenda. During the financial crisis 2009, it wasn't the European banks that opened the spigot, created liquidity. It was American liquidity that lifted Europe up. The US dominates Europe. Your, Europe is not a project. It remains an American project. I mean, you know, Brexit, it's bizarre that the British people thought they will exit Europe and have a closer relationship with the US. You're exiting one US project for another. So it's hardly that this is some sort of liberty that it's, that was very poorly understood in my opinion. I mean, as it is, we know Europe was something that was first debated in Harvard University. You know, it was mooted, the European Union, European community, etc. So what I would feel is that the Chinese are very interested in multipolarity, international law, balancing. This is what they say, you know, and they are interested in having a global commercial um, footprint. Uh, the Chinese are not interested, it seems to me, in contesting U.S. military power around the world, but they do want to not allow the United States to dictate the terms to anybody. So when it came to Venezuela and Iran this time, the Iranians last year sent an oil tanker through the Straits of Gibraltar to Syria. That was captured by the British in Gibraltar held. It provoked a huge incident. That tanker actually didn't fly an Iranian flag. Um, it was flying a third country flag. But this year, uh, with, I think, open statements from the Chinese, the Iranians sent five oil tankers with Iranian flags, their radars on, to Venezuela. They went through an American blockade, entered Venezuelan ports, and you know, discharged the oil, that they, the gasoline that they carried, which, by the way, the Venezuelans paid for. It was a normal commercial transaction, normal capitalism, which the Americans were preventing through imperial pressure, not capitalist pressure. So, I mean, seems to me what the Chinese are interested in is not world domination. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was once in Seoul, South Korea. I was in a mall and I saw U.S. soldiers walking around. They were armed. I saw U.S. soldiers walking around a South Korean mall in Seoul, South Korea with guns just roaming around. They're buying things, maybe going to see a film. Um, I've never seen Chinese soldiers anywhere in the world roaming around with guns. You know, this is not the fantasy of the Chinese government. They don't want this. In fact, even the military buildup seems to me to protect the territory of China from U.S. pressure. You know, it's a much smaller military than the U.S. military. So I don't see them actually going out into, um, you know, Central Asia or anywhere with Chinese special forces confronting the U.S. That's not happening. You could say that the Chinese and Russians have produced an alliance over the last five years where the Russians have militarily contested America. But again, it's defensive. You know, the United States has about 50 different warm water ports around the world, maybe more. Russia has only two. One was in, in the Crimea, Sevastopol, and the other was in Latakia in Syria. Now, interestingly, 
uh, Western power tried to essentially undercut the only two warm water ports that the Russian Navy has. One by the uh, uh, you know attempted overthrow of the government in Syria, Bashar al-Assad's government, and second by the attempted breaking of ties between Ukraine and Russia. And in both cases, Russia entered in a, I would say this is a defensive maneuver to protect the interests. And what was the interest? The main interest was the warm water port. Without those warm water ports, the Russian Navy is not able to function uh, during the, uh, the winter months. And so they were able to take Crimea and have the Sevastopol port, which they still have, so that they could then come through Turkey into the Mediterranean and the port in Latakia. There's no other warm water port. Those were defensive interventions. Russia intervened in Syria 2015 defensively. Nobody is actually in an offensive place against the United States. So to think of it as US hegemony waning, China rising, this is just a fantasy of columnists. This is not what's happening. The Chinese are not interested in becoming primus into Paris. So would you say then that it would be possible theoretically to have a system of nation states, a global capitalism sort of mediated through a system of nation states as we have now, that is that is a kind of a, a good system that works for everyone in the world. Is that possible or, or, or not? Uh, no, that's not possible exactly because um, there are some fundamental inequalities which cannot be addressed by this system. Uh, let, let's take the experiment of the UN. United Nations is a glorious experiment. You know, the idea was you have a general assembly. Every member state is a member of the general assembly. In the general assembly, you can discuss in a, as if it's a world parliament, major issues, you can resolve certain things, and then the world's governments are obligated in one way or the other uh, to follow the world's parliament. That was beautiful. The char UN Charter is amazing. What does the United States do? Um, you know, uh, Richard Nixon will send Daniel Patrick Moynihan to become the ambassador uh, to the UN. Uh, Moynihan arrives, by the way, his time at the UN, he, his memoir is called A Dangerous Place. Uh, so he, 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 he writes a book about the UN, calls it a dangerous place. United States very deftly used the UN Re General Assembly resolution on Zionism as racism. They very deftly used that resolution to delegitimize the General Assembly and basically shift all power to the Security Council, where the United States has a firm block uh, that it controls. In other words, France, the United Kingdom, uh, and, and the US. Those are three votes out of the five permanent members. You know, the USSR and China. Um, China, after 72, often voted with the United States because of their strategic disagreement with the USSR. So the US shifts decision-making to the to the, from the General Assembly to the Security Council. Now, here's this glorious experiment of 193-odd countries on equal footing having, a, even that was not tolerable. Uh, because if you look at General Assembly votes, they are quite different from the spirit of the Security Council. In the General Assembly, for instance, there is an annual condemnation of the Israeli occupation of the Palestinians, annual condemnation. In the General Assembly, there's an annual condemnation of the blockade on Cuba. This is the spirit of the world. This is what the world believes. The Cuban blockade should end, the US blockade on Cuba, and the Palestinians should be given their liberation. These are two irreducible minimums for the last 60 years that the General Assembly articulates annually at an enormous majority, like 170 votes against 10 or 13, you know, it's like an unshakable majority. Yet, in the Security Council, the mood is completely different. In the Security Council, the United States says the, you know, the suffocation of Cuba will be in perpetuity until this government falls, until the revolution is crushed, and the Israeli government gets a green light to do whatever it wants against the Palestinians. That's the mood of the United States in the security, and Therefore, the Security Council dominates world affairs. Now, that to me is a great example. It's a perfect example of seeing the limitations of the democratic process in this system. You know, I mean, until and unless you, um, in a sense, overcome imperialism, which means you will have to overcome the capitalist system as well, until and unless you overcome this way of organizing human reality, because that's all it is. I mean, the capitalist system isn't some mystical God-given thing. It's just a way to organize human relations, you know? Unless you overcome this, 
it seems impossible that the countries of the world would be able to drive an agenda. And even that's not perfect because you have equal vote between India in the General Assembly, you know, which has a population of 1.3 billion and a country that has a population of, you know, 4 million. I mean, Lebanon is a country of 4 million people. There are more people in my mother's neighborhood in Calcutta in India than there is in the country of Lebanon. But it's a sovereign state. So there are inequities in the way in which countries can vote in the UN. And that's something that we have to, I think, just live with. But it's that inequity, 1.4 billion, one vote, 4 million, one vote, is far less of a problem, in my opinion, than allowing the United States and its veto power to dominate the Security Council and allow five countries merely to dominate world affairs. Even though there are 10 rotating seats, 15 people sit in the Security Council, the five dominate the Security Council. Of the five, the United States totally dominates things as much as it can do. This means that the system has to change. Okay, last, last question then. What system would you like to see instead? I mean, I would like to see a system where, you know, let's think about it like this. Um, In the modern world, we all labor socially. You know, our labor is not into, I don't go out and, you know, dig in the soil and put crops in and then just eat off what I do. I'm not a petty producer sustaining myself. I am in a social relations with other people. Everything I do is social, you know, uh, the way I eat is social, the way I interact is social, my intellectual development is social, nothing is individual. Individuals don't exist in the modern world. We just are not individuals, we are social beings. We socially labor, some of us get paid, some don't get paid, but we're all laboring. You know, whether I'm taking care of my kid or I'm earning a wage, I'm laboring socially. We produce the world socially. But the wealth that we produce is privately accumulated. And that to me is the great source of suffering in the world, is that there is social labor and private accumulation. That's how I define capitalism. What I would like to see is a system where we socially labor and we share the fruits of our social labor. And that name you can give socialism. So it's a very simple distinction. You know, I don't think anybody would disagree except hardcore defenders of capitalism who don't accept that we socially labor. You see, they think that there are some geniuses that have great ideas and therefore they should be rewarded for their ideas. I don't think that's the case. You know, I don't think there's a great genius who, look at this pandemic. Suddenly human labor is withdrawn. The system has collapsed. You know, why isn't Elon Musk able to make goods from his brain? He can't. He needs uh, human labor. So in that sense, I would like to see a system where our social labor is share, the wealth of it is shared socially. And you want to call that socialism, communism, whatever you want to call it is fine by me, as long as our social labor is shared socially. Well, I keep having loads of follow-up questions, but I think I should let you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Our Voices podcast from Open Democracy. If you enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen, why not head to iTunes, subscribe and leave us a review. Open Democracy is an independent global media platform that is only possible because of your kind donations. To find out more or to make a donation, head to opendemocracy.net.